Co-Selling Hero, hosted by real estate veteran Tom Didion. Each week, we break down today's ultra-hot home seller's market and give you the tips, tricks, and guidance to navigate the selling process and get the most out of selling your home. Proudly presented by the Tom Didion team. Let's jump in. Greetings and moyen, everybody. Uh, thanks for coming back to the Home Selling Hero podcast. I am your host, Tom Didier. Happy Thanksgiving, probably happy belated Thanksgiving by the time our um, listeners are listening to this. But I have a guest today, Scott McLean. Uh, Scott McLean is a home inspector. He is our first home inspector as a guest. And I'm excited to talk to you, Scott, because I think we're both consider ourselves uh, friends and colleagues. And I think what's really cool is that you and I have, well, you have more experience in life but you and I have both been in the real estate industry for 27 years. I started at the exact same time that you were, if I understand correctly, shifting out of the home building business and into the home inspection business. So right. I can't imagine there's a whole lot of inspectors around Milwaukee that have more experience than you. I mean, there's probably a few that are equal to you, but I think you've probably seen it all. So with that, I will uh, turn the microphone over to you, Scott. Introduce yourself to our listeners so they know who they're listening to. Hi, well, as, as Tom said, my name is Scott McLean, and uh, my wife and I own uh, Town & Country Building Inspections since 1996. We specialize and keep it narrow, uh, focus on uh, home inspections, building inspections, commercial inspections, and we are fully certified, which is very difficult to do, for radon. And so we test and, and that with computers doing it the right way, uh, not getting false results, as many people do. In 96, as I mentioned, I started uh, with uh, Town and & Country, and uh, we haven't looked back particularly. We've enjoyed uh, home inspection. No two days are the same. I always find something I've never seen before, which is just a curious thing, and uh, it's enjoyable. This latest market has been difficult in that uh, you can't buy a house if you have any contingencies like financing and all that sort of thing, which is just a, a remarkable position to be in. We did make it uh, through the recession of 2008 and nine. Many, many home inspectors did not, probably 70%. I think there's about 450 active licenses right now in the state, and the number of licenses that have been given out are approaching 4,000. So you're saying 450 are currently licensed out of the 4,000 licenses. Yeah, well, active, active. Active, gotcha. Yeah. So some have retired, some have moved. And if you put that side by side with the realtors, it's probably some, you know, a lot of similarities, right? We go as the market goes too. We have people getting in and getting out, and a lot of that depends on what the market's providing for us. Exactly. Well, in the last few years, it's been, been providing pretty well. Before we get into talking about this crazy market as it relates to home inspections, let's back up and just kind of give the listeners at least your version, and your version might be different from mine, which I think will be kind of cool. But what? tell the listener, what is the purpose of having a home inspection in your, in your words? In some ways, it's rather simple, and that would be to give uh, an object, more objective view, uh, more of an educated view of how the house is going to perform, uh, at several levels. Uh, first level would be like a significant defect where the basement walls really popped out. Um, all the fuses, or the house still has fuses, you know, just wacky stuff. And then it narrows down to the 35-year-old furnace, 
things that just aren't working. The roof isn't leaking, uh, which is not the test of whether it's over with or not. Uh, when the ship is sinking, you know there's something wrong with the ship. I don't, you know, that, that's a bit extreme. But um, if the roof is at its end uh, or close to or needs repairs, you know, roof, roofs need repairs doesn't mean they're at the end of their life. And so to give all of that in a, in a condensed form and to show what those things are so that per- people can make an informed decision about what they're getting into when they buy a used house. Right, right. So well, that's an interesting point that you say. It's a good summary, and I agree with it. Right at what you said at the end there brings up a good point because you said so they can make a decision. So now from a realtor's point of view, and I think you'll agree that inspectors and realtors, although we love each other and depend on each other, there's always some sort of conflict too, in my opinion, because from a realtor's point of view, at the end of this three-hour inspection, you're getting paid no matter what, and you're going on to three more inspections for your day, whereas we we're still fighting to keep a deal alive. And so I think realtors sometimes look at the home inspector as the big bad wolf that is going to get in the way of me potentially closing a deal, and more importantly, representing the interests of my buyer. So, you know, what you said is at the end there of, so they can make an informed decision, keep in mind the realtor's point of view is sometimes they've already made a decision. I think that's the biggest conflict between buyers and home inspectors is that it's our opinion that the buyers have already made a decision. They've made a decision to buy this house, and now you're coming in, and that's where the conflict is, is that you could potentially impact their decision, which is correct, it all depends on setting expectations. So I've always said that it's our job to set the expectations with the buyer and make them realize why they're, well, ask them too, why are they having a home inspection? I think it's to do everything you just said and basically create a to-do list for the next however many years they intend to be there. So if they intend to be there for five years, it's like, all right, the purpose of this home inspection is to let you know what you're getting into and to create your to-do list for the next five years. You know, you come up with five to ten things, and okay, let's prioritize these things. I agree. Sometimes things are total surprises, like, oh, my gosh, the, you know, the bad ones are the furnace is leaking carbon monoxide. That's pretty bad because you're literally life is in danger. Um, the basement wall is always an interesting one. I, I would ask for your opinion. My opinion is that the basement wall is the number one deal killer of all real estate in southeast Wisconsin. Well, we have these unusual clay soils that will uh, break any any basement, and there are five, four or five areas around the Milwaukee area and beyond uh, that are really bad, you know, um, yeah. and so they get fixed a couple of times over the course of years. Um, but uh, to your point about um, the mismatch between uh, the home inspector duties and the realtor duties, there is a mismatch that it doesn't mm-hmm. get discussed very much and that our standards of practice per the state of Wisconsin do not include any reference to money or how much things are. And yeah. I think that that's a real rub because that's completely contrary to anyone buying something, trying to figure out what to do. Like a safety item, a huge safety item uh, could be $2 to fix, but you have to make a deal out of it, otherwise it doesn't get addressed, Um, and we have to report it. Um, So I think from the get-go, our standards are mismatched, uh, apparently on purpose, legislatively. Uh, why, I don't really know. I mean, I can think of some reasons, but I don't really know why to the degree that it causes uh, upset between the two groups. Um, 
And so, yes, I would agree with you that you have a to-do list in the future. Um, we're, we're talking about now uh, a market where the seller's been completely in control. We're moving to a market or in a market where the buyer is really important. And then if we move to a market where the buyer is crazy important, then, uh, and the sellers are not, a lot of our home inspections, frankly, become weaponized. And mm. everything from missing light bulbs to just a little mar on the floor have to get fixed or they're walking. Have a house to sell, but not sure who to trust when it comes to getting the best deal and leveraging the current market? Trust the experts at the Tom Didier team. With over a quarter century of selling Milwaukee, Tom and his team of real estate experts are here to ensure that you get every penny you deserve out of selling your home. No matter where you live in the dairy state, put one of Wisconsin's top real estate teams to work for you in selling your home and making the most of your real estate investment. Looking to buy a house instead? Tom and his team have you covered here as well, helping you craft and perfect the offer on your dream home. Visit SellingMilwaukee.com to find out how much your home could be worth and connect with the team to make your next real estate transaction a dream. Now, back to the show. That's, a, that's an interesting term. I haven't heard that, that your, your inspections have become weaponized. So you're talking like, you're referencing the years, I would say, 2009 through 2012. Your, your inspections were kind of weapons at that point because... The inspector found these 10 things. You better be prepared to fix those 10 things if you want to move this deal forward. Right. And it is up to the inspector to say, yes, these are all important things. You need to read your inspection. You've got a leaky this and a leaky that. And I'm not here to advise you on the deal, but, you know, it, it's a wonderful used house. The other big rub, uh, when I say used, because it makes realtors shudder uh, when I say that word, is that we're not selling a lifestyle. We're not talking about, oh, the schools are the best possible. We're not talking about, oh, the granites from the strangest little place in India. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it's not a lifestyle that we're talking about, which, again, is completely contrary to the whole approach of selling a house. So in that way, we stick out like a sore thumb as the uh, wake-up call to the reality of the situation. And so just that whole position, let alone finding anything that's, that fits that, uh, is problematic for a client to understand when they're so emotionally involved. Yeah, yeah. Would you agree that our industries even, I think you bring up a great point that our standards of practice might not be in a line they were getting better, though. So recently, legislatively, like you talked about, there's a lot of politics behind. But we have, if I understand correctly, we've both shared the definition of defect now, which at least helps us be on the same page between the broker, the inspector, and the buyer. We, we have the same definition of a defect now, correct? We went from three definitions to two, and one that we use 90% of the time. It's a little confusing still. But, uh, yes, we have one that, that we've settled on that's pretty broad, and it's in the eyes of the uh, home inspector whether something's a defect or not. And just so, for shits and giggles, we'll, we'll give the, uh, the listener the, the definition, and then you can, uh, they can form an opinion on their own. So. For the purposes of a real estate transaction in Wisconsin, the standard offer to purchase says that a defect means a condition that would have a significant adverse effect on the value of the property, 
that would significantly impair the health or safety of future occupants of the property, or that if not repaired, removed, or replaced, would significantly shorten or adversely affect the expected normal life of the home. So if that's not the most confusing legal description of a defect, I don't know what is, but it's not very narrow. And uh, I still think the opportunity exists for everyone to not agree on whether something's a defect, but it, it's a starting point. It's, it's all we have to work with right now. I think it's gotten a little bit better. It's a little better, and at least we're talking about the same definition, let alone uh, we have one and you have another, and we're trying to figure it out. You're kind of like the guy that really enjoys and or understands old homes. So what is your, what is your opinion on when did we build the best homes? Based on, what, based on what you can inspect currently in the Milwaukee market, which I would say are homes between 100 and brand new or 130 years old-ish, does that sound about right? Yeah. Which era was built the best? That's a great question. It goes in waves, and it has to do with building technology for the most part. Mm. Um, I'll reverse your question for a minute, if you don't mind. 1970s through the mid-80s are probably some of the worst in that the fiberboard was a brand new thing, and it was the best thing since sliced bread was invented, and they used it in every possible way, and uh, all it does is become... uh, oatmeal when it gets damp or wet and there's no strength to it so there's a lot of uh whether it's the cabinets or the flooring or the wall systems um it it just isn't so good um the other thing is there's a lot of physics that weren't figured out until frankly rather recently in terms of wall construction and the moisture migration between inside cooking and bathing and all that and going through the wall outside to a dry area or vice versa air conditioned inside and the moisture coming right through the wall from the exterior they're all uh, they're not uh, made out of rubber you know they, they do uh, my moisture migrates all the time through everything back to your question uh, the best era probably would be post world war or world war 1 1890s world war 1 um i think 1890s through world war 1 sometimes they're a little uh small no closets things like that but uh, from World War I through the 20s, bungalows are, are certainly a design that is uh, in fashion today as much as, as it was then and accepted and sought after. Uh, ranches, of course, are tried and true and, and a good colonial two-story. Um, we went from a, where they would build a house and platform uh, or stick stick form where it went the two by four was was two stories up all one uh all one called balloon construction and then it switched to platform where one story and then two stories and they build on top of each other and that's a little better way of doing things frankly so well it's good Uh, my dad always taught me very early on that the best investment for a buyer to make is a very typical three-bedroom one-bath ranch the more of them, the better, because those are always protected in value. They're not super unique, but it's just a great family investment to make. So, Well, any age of people, people with kids, a couple without kids, older couple, they can all buy a ranch. And right. so it's it's a marketing thing, too. But you were saying after World War One, That's interesting. That's that's uh, I'm not a historian here, so that's 19... 19- okay, we'll talk about liquor. End of Prohibition, how's that? 
Is that oh, a better reference okay. for you? Okay. <laughs> 1919, 1920. Okay, 19, oh, okay, 1920. All right, good. It's interesting you brought up World War I because I just finished Jeff Hoffman's book um, called uh, Industry, and he interviewed the CEO of Newman Homes, which, as you know, is a very big builder in our area, and they talked about the price of construction, price per foot, and how you know nobody's really rejoicing in it. Everyone's complaining about it. And um, the guy from Newman says there's really not a problem with the price of goods and labor right now. The problem is the people that have this desire to build huge homes that they don't need. So then he references, like, after World War II, our families were being raised in 1,100-square-foot homes, and they were raising bigger families, and it was working out just fine. If you take, if you want to build a 1,200-square-foot home right now, it's not, it's not crazy. It's just that the, everyone's shifted from 1,200-square-foot homes to 2,400-square-foot homes, even though the human beings are the same size uh, and the families are technically getting smaller, what we want is gotten twice as big. It's kind of an interesting And all the amenities that go with it. And all of the amenities that go with it. It's, yeah, the, you know, it used to be tight, small, little, little yards where you know your neighbors very, very well. And now right. we come into these gated communities where, you know, you've got a gate to keep people out and the garage doors are always closed and you never know if somebody's home or not. It's just kind of something interesting to think about. A lot of McMansions, uh, of course, the building industry, like the car industry, it's it's about how fast you can get things put together because time is money. And so, it, you know, don't don't assume things are put together really well. The poor building inspector, you know, barely has time to get out of his car and go look at what's going on. And, and so and are certainly overrun with uh, work and uh, have have their assistants no longer working in where they're working because of lack of money in the jurisdictions. And there's uh, all the jurisdictions have open availability for building inspectors uh, that they can't fill. Talk to me a little bit about how technology has changed your industry over the past 27 years and maybe just hit on the biggest, the biggest changes because of technology. Let's just take the last few years. There's infrared cameras, which uh, a lot of people use. Uh, like every uh, instrument, or you know, are they are they used as an instrument or are they a, to- a whiz bang toy? And so you need uh, a home inspector who has some real certifications, which require time and use of the mater- of the camera to really understand. You can make a lot of mistakes with a camera or uh, interpret it like it's talking to you. It requires a lot of interpretation. Some of it's simple, some of it's uh, quite arcane. And uh, for a home inspector to say, yes, this is wet and this is a big problem and you're missing this and you're missing that uh, in these areas that you can't see right through the walls um, is great, but it can lead to a, a lot of issues that are not issues, frankly. Yeah. And so that's that's becoming a little more accepted. More people have them. And then the other one, of course, people talk about drones, using them on roofs and that kind of thing, which is a great thing. But again, um, it, it adds, uh, you know, I mean, there's pluses and minuses to everything. And I'm, I'm all for drones. Uh, I've just found, I mean, I worked... 25 years without a drone I don't I haven't really had too many people get upset with me about roofs and we've done a good job I haven't gotten to the drone part until you know I can do it 
with my eyes closed and right. make it that simple. There are some new regulations that are making it really simple to uh, have a drone, so we might investigate that. But I can't say that we've been at a loss because of a lack of it. We do a lot of really large homes, homes where there are lots of uh, roofs we can't see at all, and um, uh, historic homes that are three and a half, four stories up in a tight little lot that's almost as big as the house and so that would be a perfect spot i have people that i that i work with that come out with drums uh when i know those are uh gonna that's gonna be a situation we can also look at the chimney you had mentioned earlier the biggest issue being basements boy right behind it close second of and the same cost is our chimneys yeah. uh it's said that uh 80 to 95 percent of all chimneys are bad and uh that's from the industry, and and I believe that. So yeah, I totally agree. And and what I've noticed with the chimneys, besides the fact that they're not sized right, they're not vented right, they're deteriorating. The flues are deteriorating from the inside, the the tuck pointing on the exterior. But the other thing is that they're just not being used anymore, right? I mean, you've got the new furnaces are power vent, the new water heaters are power vent. Um, so we're seeing a lot of chimneys, in my experience, that yeah look like crap and are performing like crap. But usually the best, um, sometimes the best course of action is just to disable the chimney altogether and vent stuff yeah. to the outside. Absolutely. We just want to make sure it doesn't fall down. But, uh, yeah, cap yeah. it so that when we get two or three inches of water, we don't get that down the chimney. Yeah. Uh, those acids from, like, say, a bungalow from the 20s or 30s or 40s, frankly, a house from the 40s, use coal uh, for 20 or 30 years and then oil for probably 20 years and then natural gas. Uh, for the fumes and the oil and coal are very similar petrochemicals but when we include uh, natural gas that uh, that chemical in the exhaust that petrochemical uh, actually turns everything to sulfuric acid and eats everything up and all those are just sitting there waiting for a little moisture and warmth to uh, start activating again Mm -hmm. uh, used or not and so capping it is a really good idea. Or frankly, if it's a little, what we call a service chimney, it was just for the furnace and hot water tank, uh, maybe take it down, you know. Uh, yep. That might be uh, not a bad idea and easier than one might think, unfortunately, because <laughs> it's loose. Well, as long as we're talking about big, bad swear words, um, let's hit on two different things that I'm guessing you're pretty well versed in and give me kind of your summary. Let our listeners know what these items are and why they need to be aware of them. And those two items would be radon and asbestos. I'm guessing you're pretty well versed in what both of those things are. Yes. Well, just so you know, for the record, um, home inspectors are exempt, uh, wholly exempt from speaking about or talking about any environmental issues like asbestos uh, and, and radon. Um, once you start talking about it, you do have to have a, a complete statement and uh, uh, meaning your observation and that the potential of it for being asbestos. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe you'd agree with me, but the places we see it would be in the 1950s floor tiles. Uh, people refer to those in the basement typically, but they could be on the first floor, uh, in kitchens and bathrooms. Sure. Um, and so... Uh, they talk about nine by nine 
floor tiles. But really, uh, I have used to have a box that was from 1976 that was all vinyl with flowers, all hippie flowers all over it, and it said asbestos in the vinyl. Yeah. So you don't really know. Um, and the, the darn tiles wear forever because of the asbestos. Um, some people, uh, uh, let me back up. So some people say cover it, you know, with a new floor covering. Some people t- say take it out. Uh, I've had uh, legal officials tell me that uh, one man's improvement is another man's concealment. Mm-hmm. And certainly you never want that uh, phone call or letter in the mail that comes later. So think about it. Uh, we don't give advice as to what to do unless it's a complete mess. And taking it up is not the big deal it used to be. It's not the horror financial financial horror that it was. Basement tiles can be taken up for you know usually under a couple thousand bucks or okay. around there, and then you're done with it. You're done with it for your own occupation, but also your buyer is going to be uptight about it in the future too, no doubt. Uh, so you have to think about your buyer all the time because they're standing right. there with you asking the same questions. So I'm going to put um, you on the spot. I'm going to put you on the spot, and you can choose to answer or not. But your kids and or grandkids are moving into a Cape Cod from the 1950s in Milwaukee, and they have one of those classic rec rooms that are a tile, 9 by 9 tile floor, most likely with asbestos in it. What is your recommendation going to be to your kids and or grandkids moving into this house? Um, well, it can start breaking up and be loose uh, because of the humidity under the floor. And I don't mm-hmm. mean leaking basement. I mean just humidity. Okay. Uh, so when, it's, when the damp months come uh, the, and the humidity is under the floor, the glue relaxes. And then when it dries out, through the course of the summer or in the middle of winter, it hardens. And 60 years of that breaks up the uh, tiles typically around the corners, around the floor drain, under the washer, places there might be water. And and, and those are legitimate areas that, you know, that that you can have a, an asbestos, quote, uh, friable issue where the stuff is floating in the air. In terms of my own family, one, it is illegal for me to make a comment on a personal comment like that in the oh, standards of practice, okay. uh, much like whether I, people ask me all the time whether I should buy the house or not. Right. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, what can I say? I don't yeah. say anything. Um, but uh, to your point, um, I think it's more of a business decision. I think that I know that uh, while uh, we're in sort of a gray area still, people are hemming and hawing about it now. In the future, they won't because things don't get more relaxed. They get more uptight. And uh, I would budget for as part of the any fix-up or added lights to make it you know nice, modern, and clean and paint, I would take it out. And the radon, um, there are areas with radon. You can go to, um, I always suggest to people to go to lowradon.org. It's the uh, state and EPA combined website for Wisconsin. And you can look up each area by zip code as to what they traditionally have in terms of a level. Uh, Radon, uh, we can talk all day about how deadly it is and how awful it is. But again, back to the asbestos, you know, I talk about it being a business decision. You know, if you've got it, uh, you can get it fixed for, you know, $1,000, $1,200, and you're done with it. Uh, The system uh, creates a vacuum under the floor and blows it outside up 10 feet. And um, it also draws out the humidity from under the floor in the basement. So we have a dryer home, uh, cheaper to heat and cool, more comfortable. So it's not an all bad thing having the system in. 
That's interesting. I just typed in lowradon.org as you were speaking, and I've been doing this 27 years. I didn't know, I don't think I knew this website existed, but it starts out with a headline right from the state government saying one in 10 homes in Wisconsin has high radon. I would, in my experience, or at least in southeast Wisconsin, it's higher than that. What, what would you say out of 10 homes in our area has high radon? I, I'm seeing closer to a, a third of them. A uh, third or more. Um, yeah. yeah, inner inner Milwaukee does not. Uh, starting at about 68th Street, 65th, whether it's in Milwaukee or Wauwatosa or Waukesha, wherever, uh, it starts out as you head west. It gets crazy around Lannan and that yeah. kind of thing. And so it's just something you don't need in your life and easy to get rid of. You know, yeah. and certainly Port Washington and uh, Ozaki County certainly have it in spades. So yeah, I've seen the uh, western the western side of Ozaki County have a lot of bedrock. And and just so the listeners understand, if I'm correct, Scott, the the level of radon in your home is in direct correlation to how much bedrock is beneath your home and how the how, the how uranium uh, in the yeah. gran and the granite e- emit okay. uh, radon. And radon disappears after 20 days. So when I'm talking about it uh, being blown outside from a system, it doesn't accumulate. It it, it goes away. Yeah. So, yeah. but well, it, and yeah. As like you said, what's good about it is that we figured out how to get rid of it. And I've always called it a thousand dollar kick in the pants. It used mm-hmm. to be a thousand dollars. Now sometimes it's up to fifteen hundred bucks, depending on how easy the install is. But like you said, uh, you can you can you can correct it by just simply putting in a radon mitigation system. And I think most of the new construction around here, not most of it, but a good a good portion of it is now taking that into consideration while they're building their new house. Well, that makes it very inexpensive because all you need to do is add a fan and a little plastic pipe and you're done. So, yeah. All right. So listeners know a little bit more about radon and a little bit more about asbestos. What else, uh, what other swear words, stigmatized things can you think of that uh, you think the listeners might want to know about? Well, there are more technical things in terms of safety. Uh, uh, You can go to Menards and buy a little corrugated a drain pipe and put it in your bathroom or make a repair with it because you can make it adjust to any distance, any size. It's the kind of thing I would do So mm-hmm. I'm not good at plumbing at all. Uh, the problem with the corrugations, which is just a common repair, is that all the bacteria and dirt accumulate in the uh, corrugations and the pleats of it, uh, never come out, and never get washed. Um, it's called scurrying. That's why you have slick uh, plumbing, so it scurries all the stuff out. Uh, mm-hmm. And so people at your at your bathroom sink, uh, you're putting your contacts in and all that, you know, air comes up and down out of the plumbing. And so you get a little air blowing that you don't even feel out of the drain, and all that bacteria is all over the counter. And so people are constantly getting eye infections from their contacts, so they think uh, they can't figure it out. They wash everything, complete everything. Uh, that's the source of it. And that can also happen in in a kitchen so that your sink is always full of bacteria no matter what you do uh that's something that doesn't get talked a lot about but that's the reason the plumbing Hmm. is is set up the way it is so that you don't use those things that seems like that would be a good segue to a short conversation about mold and what mold is and where it exists and why it exists and if it's dangerous and to whom very little of it is quote-unquote dangerous. That's not to say it won't set off your allergies and that kind of thing. Uh, most of the mold uh, or discoloration or uh, what we've been instructed to call it is my possible uh, microbial growth because uh, mold is a four-letter word. We have to be careful yes. about spewing that out. 
your attic is a is a favorite spot. Usually it's a combination of just plain dirt that's washed uh, over the surfaces uh, from all the volumes and volumes of air movement. Um, and it's unusual to have a, a great amount of uh, discoloration from a mold-like substance. Having said that, it does happen. Uh, it happens when you have the bath fan from the 1970s or 80s going right into the attic, as was okay at the time. is not okay now, and it's not accepted now as a grandfathered item that it has to go outside. Uh, you're pumping all that warm, uh, fresh air, and let alone from a shower or bathroom, you've also got bacteria that goes up there. Uh, it's hard to believe, but it does. And uh, off it grows because there's warmth, there's uh, water, humidity, and uh, wood or some other material as a food source. So all you have to do is cut one of those out and the mold stops. Usually it's very easy to clean. There are a couple of EPA approved paints that uh, take care of uh, the majority of uh, situations where they're just not out yeah. of control. If it's totally out of control, then uh, there's more to be done from taking out all the insulation to uh, having some really heavy specialized paints put on very, very accurately and not missing a thing. Uh, and then uh, any air gaps from the interior living space to the attic gets sealed. They're called bypasses where all the potential of uh, humidity and air rising from the living space gets cut off. Uh, there's also leaking uh, mold and that kind of thing around windows, inside the walls, and things like that, uh, particularly from a 90s house. But we, you'll never know it until it really starts uh, coming apart from the water. It might surprise listeners to know that a lot of times the recommended method for removing mold that is not has not reached the point of becoming dangerous is that uh, is to simply use Dawn dish soap and a scrub brush. Sometimes that's the uh, New York City uh, approved. In, it's uh, approved internationally to use. Uh, never use bleach. Bleach just kills the right. surface of it and gives you a nice clean look that gives you satisfaction. The trouble is that uh, mold, like anything, has uh, like that uh, has roots to it, and Dawn gets to the roots and and kills all that. So wow. if you've got a basement wall or you've had a bookcase against a basement wall and it's kind of old and nasty looking, uh, Dawn. Uh, uh, with a with a plastic like laundry scrub brush is, is the best thing to do and keep it wet for a while so it really soaks in. Well, uh, I was going to say too plug. about the attic, which is real common, is that it's not in the living space. Right. Uh, you have to bear that in mind uh, as, as before one completely freaks out. It's yeah, not I was going to say that space. you're not. I mean, unless you're hosting family Thanksgiving in the attic, then it's it's you know reason to be concerned. But most people aren't up there too much. No, no. That's interesting. That so, Dawn dish soap is an actual state-approved method of removing mold in the state of New York, and is recognized internationally. Uh, mm -hmm. They yeah, use they use the New York standards for, uh, across the world. Yeah, they call oh, it now. They used to say Dawn. Now they call it uh, liquid detergent. Oh, which okay. uh, Dawn is, has a peculiar product uh, to making this really work. Well, yeah. now that we've plugged Dawn three times, maybe uh, we'll. This podcast will earn us some like free hats or something. It will get a certificate. Yeah, right. Um, all right, here's another swear word for you that's not four letters. Um, it's many letters, but can you tell us what efflorescence is and what it is an indication of? 
Usually it's discussed around masonry products, uh, masonry construction, which could be a basement, uh, could be a foundation uh, as examples, as well as a uh, chimney um, or even cement concrete, but not quite as much. Uh, So we have this natural movement, a physics movement, of uh, moisture from the outside of a basement wall wanting to travel through the basement wall and concrete or block or any masonry product, even stone, the mortar, uh, are all very permeable. Not a little permeable, but very permeable. (laughs) And so the moisture, water, dampness comes through to the surface of the interior block wall. It evaporates because it's so much drier. And then, but in that moisture, we have loose uh, or loosened uh, lime salts uh, that are in the mortar as one of the bonding agents uh, that glue it all together. And that salt then is continually deposited upon the surface uh, of the remaining block wall. And uh, the mortar will deteriorate, even the block surface will deteriorate over many, many years. It's usually not an instant thing, but it tells you there's a source of uh, humidity or water at that location. Maybe there's a downspout there that constantly is overflowing, a, a valley from a roof that's constantly overflowing, or just a gutter at that location. So it gives you a clue of, as to the outside water. The efflorescence is, again, just salt. It's not mold. You know, I wouldn't put it on your steak when you go out to eat, but uh, it's, it's, it's nothing wrong with it. If it really, really deteriorates the mortar, like in a brick wall, uh, brick is more susceptible to it because the brick is much like a, a loaf of French bread. The outside crust is the structure. The interior is just powder. Uh, and the outside surface will deteriorate along with this process. Uh, you have to be careful of that because then the bricks start to crush because there's no strength to them or move. Um, and then uh, what we should do is put a coating of plaster, cement plaster on the outside of it, uh, block, or it can be done, or even particularly brick. Uh, and that's called a sacrificial parging because it's recognized that this parging will come apart and dissolve as it's supposed to do rather than the brick and the mortar come apart as as it does if it's not done right so uh it's part of the process um it's something you want to slow down or uh work at uh but generally these basements are not designed to have living space down below and so these sorts of things were never thought about as to how to mitigate uh, that process it was an accepted yeah, it's been my things. experience that it's not uncommon at all to see efflorescence in homes built between, I would say, 1945 and 1980. I don't know right. if you'd agree or disagree. but Well, it would be the drain, the, the drain tile. At those ages, we have a drain tile, which is a pipe about this big yeah. that runs around the perimeter of the foundation, uh, interior and exterior, and has little openings in it or joints um, that then collects the water as the water... Uh, goes to the bottom of the footing foundation it has a place to go and not pressurize the wall is the theory and how it works the devil's in the details in that that constant water i was mentioning those drainage locations also take the silt and dirt and fill those right up so at 1940 or 50 you might have a nice pipe like this that then now is filled up to here with with mud and they're hampered Uh, People talk about failed drain tiles or this or that, but there's also just ones that work pretty good but are hampered. 
And so under heavy conditions, the water sits in those pipes. And if the water sits in those pipes, then it changes to humidity and comes through the wall and shows that level of uh, efflorescence. But generally, it's all around the base of the wall uh, Mm -hmm. where the drain tile is uh, as an indicator. Yeah, it's been my experience the most common indicator of what it's indicating is either, like you said, poor drainage on the outside or of a drain tile system that simply isn't working and has actually collapsed or it's got tree roots in it. Something's something's uh, impeding either the interior or the exterior drain tile. That's right. That's, yeah, that's not allowing. And drain tile well. can't be flushed out is the problem. And, and the, pro- the devil's in the details once again. You can't flush it out like a pipe. Uh, it's right. got to be jackhammered out and removed and replaced, and, that, and right. that's the problem. Yeah. yeah, but it can be done. It can be done. It's done very it's commonly done all and the time now. Yeah. all the time. Right. right. I hate to keep hampering on basements, but like I said, it's the one thing I think in our industry that we always got to get by is um, these basement issues. And like you said, southeast Wisconsin, a lot of clay holds a lot of water. In the winter, that water is going to freeze and expand and push on things. When a buyer buys a home with a concrete block foundation and your inspection reveals that the east basement wall is deflected by one inch, what is your recommendation to that prospective buyer? Well, to start out with, I'm going to indicate my measurements, findings. Uh, There are different ways of measuring the wall. And so being a home inspector and not a contractor who might be on commission, uh, I am measuring the whole wall, meaning the corners, because uh, usually the corners, or at least one corner, is not broken. And you can find out how it was built. Maybe it was built, you know, half an inch off or a quarter of an inch or three-eighths of an inch off. Uh, Maybe they went home at night and started in the morning. You know, I mean, the fact that the wall is perfectly plumb is just like uh, really not very common. Uh, It happens, but it's not common. And so you take that number and you subtract it from the middle measurement, which would be the weakest area of the wall, and you come up with a net figure. So if the wall was originally built half an inch off and it's an inch off, it's really a half inch off from uh, original position as built, as they say. So half an inch isn't so bad. Um, More than three quarters of an inch is really a question. Uh, Mm -hmm. You mentioned the wall being an inch. Uh, I would first, all then after I do that, I would want to make sure that the whole wall is off an inch. If the whole wall is off an inch, then usually uh, digging outside is involved. If it's just a partial area, then usually not, uh, unless you're talked into it. You want to know if uh, any measurement that you have uh, uh, anyone else come in and look at um, is a net measurement. So, because I can go all day long around the, sure. and measure the middle wall, and it'll be way off and crazy. So, is there anything that's acceptable? All the building inspectors in Southeast Wisconsin have an association, and they all the. Uh, areas, with the exception of West Allis, have approved uh, standards that follow uh, what they call WAFRA, which was an industry group that came up with standards uh, almost exactly 20 years ago. And so those standards talk about uh, a full a wall being fully off an inch. It gets dug. Uh, different types of cracks. Some are worse than others, but not and no crack is good. Uh, and there is a difference between fractures and cracks. The walls do move seasonally, and they show fractures, particularly when they're painted so beautifully. You'll mm-hmm. see them. Uh, no point in freaking out about it. Um, 
yes, there are standards, and I'm sorry to say uh, a lot of home inspectors kind of wing it. And uh, mm -hmm. the other thing we have to be careful of uh, as a home inspector is that we are not experts. Uh, we are generalists, and the contractor is considered as an expert. So when the expert contractor comes in and says, whoop, we got to do the whole wall, uh, you might ask why and get a few more people in there. Uh, you might even consider having a, a, a private basement inspector, which do exist, and or an engineer. Uh, all of those cost a little money or more than a little money, but at least you're getting someone with no uh, skin in the game in terms of uh, getting a basement deal out of it. Yep. Um, yeah, so half an inch is something you want to watch and monitor. Three quarters of an inch if there's no cracks and things like that. Uh, I mean, I've seen half inch walls with massive cracks. Yes, that's got to get looked at. There are standards, but they're not black and white as one would wish they were, uh, but not open to such grand interpretation as you mentioned. That's, it's not like that anymore. That's how it was 15 years ago. Yeah. Not now. All right, let's, uh, let's transition to the obvious difference in the marketplace, you know, since COVID started, um, I don't know if you, you know, when COVID happened, we were all right. We were all shaking our head. We had no idea how the market would respond. We didn't know how the world respond to anything. So for me, it was like a 30 day window there of everyone just kind of shut down, wait till this thing shakes out. And then we kind of got back to everyone realized, well, we got to get back to our lives and People need to move and upgrade and downgrade and, and uh, move to different places. Um, and then all of a sudden we realized there was a demand for homes and almost no inventory. And somewhere along the way, buyers were losing out. On, again, this is my opinion on based, based on what I saw, is that buyers were not getting their offers accepted. Try number one, two, three, four, five. Usually after five times of not getting a house, a buyer becomes real motivated on, okay, how do I get my offer accepted? Well, obviously from a seller's point of view, they're going to usually choose the offer with the least contingencies. So when you've got your usual contingencies in our marketplace, which are inspection, financing, and appraisal, and all of a sudden buyers started dropping those things. And I don't know if I have an opinion on which ones they dropped first, it kind of seemed to me that they were just dropping them all simultaneously. And next thing you know, buyers were willing to take houses as is, regardless of those things. Um, so talk to me a little bit about if you agree or disagree, if that's what you saw and how that's changed your uh, your industry. Well, that's exactly what I saw. And so, and it's, it's completely logical. Um, and so... Those are a lot of impediments uh, to buying a house uh, if, if, if one just wants to buy a house. Right. And a lot of people were in that position. They moved here. They had to do it. Uh, family pressures, internal family pressures. Uh, and so that's, that's what happened. And uh, certainly our business uh, went to uh, peak uh, recession-era volume. We're doing a lot more commercial than we have in the past, which has been not really affected. Um, a lot more unusual houses, as I mentioned. I do a lot of historic, uh, really old, odd, and ugly places uh, that look scary but aren't. Uh, but uh, the general bread and butter houses, as you had mentioned, the ranches and all, you know, the, the McMansions and all that were, are being sold and still are being sold uh, without home inspections. And so it's a problematic thing. 
people are discovering there's a difference between having a a, a leaky faucet uh, a door that doesn't quite close or a screen door that's you know half on a hinge mm-hmm. versus the uh, artfully decorated recently painted and recently covered basement wall that's got mm-hmm. a really big pop in it and so i've seen a slow change in the last well i would say a slow change that is a result of interest rates. So as you know, our interest rates went from, you know, basically three to seven, you know, more than doubled. And with that, I've seen home inspections all of a sudden start showing up a little bit more. It's certainly not back to what we would call normal, but I've definitely noticed a little shift in the marketplace where buyers can now get offers accepted sometimes with a home inspection. Have you seen that on your end also? Yes, our business has picked up a little bit certainly not halfway. It's probably a third more. I would say if you have a really sharp house uh, in a market area that's really hot, uh, there's there's still multiple offers being made and still uh, uh, the home inspection and uh, uh, financing and such are dropped uh, at this point still. Yeah. Yeah. It's also a, a, a real uh, big habit not to have a home inspection uh, to encourage that uh, as a natural outcome of you know wanting to have a sale and before that was never even thought of as a possibility and and now it's completely mainstream. Yep. So, have any have any predictions on uh, where you see the real estate market and your industry going in the next twelve months? Uh, well, it's tied to interest rates. Uh, so long as uh, buyers are valuable, and there are buyers, um, uh, you know, we'll, we'll become um, back being more more used. Uh, and I, I think it, it's prudent. I mean, life's hard enough. Bad things happen to people. There's no point in inviting bad things to happen to yourself and your family. I mean, I've got all kinds of current and ongoing stories to tell, but you know, I'm not going to go there just because they're all kind of negative and people got wowed in the process, but you know, by the seller and, or maybe not, maybe it's just something they didn't know either. Uh, or they bought an estate or they bought a foreclosure or something. And it's just like crazy stuff happening. Um, so I think in terms of home inspections happen in the next months, it's an interest rate thing and and people are starting, buyers are starting to sober up a little bit in terms of how valuable they are, one, and two, that bad things can happen because there's people in their office or in their immediate family who've got some things going on that they would have discovered in any normal home inspection that they're having to live with. And uh it's it's very sobering when you got to write a check that just has too many zeros in it, you know, yeah. for something really dumb. I would totally dumb. agree with everything you just said. So let's flip it opposite. Like you said, I'm sure you have tons of horror stories you can tell about all the awful things you discovered. How about the opposite? Can you give me a give me your favorite success story of something that happened that you either discovered um, or happened as a result of your home inspection? I don't want to sound negative about all the stuff we find. I mean, I've been in any number of homes. Recently, I was in a duplex uh, on the east side that had been occupied. It is occupied by the same family for 75 years. Outside of a couple odd things, uh, they had uh, vermiculite in the attic, which is a form of asbestos. It's kind of nasty. Uh, but that was put in as a really positive thing uh, in the 1950s, Korean War era. era, era. Uh, but other than that, the electrical was great. The plumbing was great. The basement was as dry as can be. Uh, it was like, wow, this is really something. And, uh, you know, they made 
you know, they had a lot of yellow floor covering and uh, green shag carpet, but I don't inspect those things. <laughs> Right. <laughs> it was amazing, and they even still had a lot. They still, they still even had a gas light hooked up. There was no gas to it, but they had uh, had switched from gas lighting probably about World War One. You know, it was eighteen ninety seven. I think it was built. So, yeah, it sounds like those switch. people were very good stewards of that uh, piece of real estate. It sounds like they absolutely and uh, all the possibility. On the other hand, I'm in houses that are three years old or five years old that are just trashed and uh but that's all done by the owner and and all the people there and uh uh usually the furnace works and the basement's okay and electric's okay but uh the inti- inside is just wow you know it's like a renter lived there but no they were the owners i think we've covered a ton of topics um i think it should be super informative to the listeners go ahead and uh give yourself uh, a little plug here scott and tell our tell our listeners where they can find you how they can contact you well, we're at Town & Country, Town with an E, Town & Country Building Inspection, Inc. Uh, we certainly have a, a broad website. We have almost uh, right at the b- edge of 300 Google reviews. Um, we're 4.9 or the ne- almost the next one up. Um, and so, again, we're pretty detailed. Um, we try to explain to people that uh, the details are maintenance items for the most part, and we'll have a few bigger ones in there. You know, no home is perfect, uh, and to take that all into stride. Um, and uh, we really work hard uh, that the, the inspection doesn't get weaponized, as I talked about, or people get discouraged. Right. It's not it's not that way. But we do find stuff, and there's a lot of checkbox kind of quick home inspections that you know, you buy off the shelf and become a home inspector. Uh, ours is all nar- narrated, it explains everything. So we're a little different in that respect, uh, a lot of pictures. Um, and so, yeah, we're just not a, a quick checkbox kind of inspection, uh, but quick in terms of the report. Uh, in terms of our inspections, uh, typically they're two and a half hours, three uh, at most, unless you've got a 10,000 square foot house. So yeah. we How keep moving in touch all with the you. time. Yeah, 414-228-6573. Google us, uh, and certainly tandcinspection.com is our website. So we are available. And we do just radon testing, too, if you want to do that. That's great, too. Yeah, and the reason I had you on here, Scott, is that I think your you know reputation precedes yourself, and you know you've you've got a lot of knowledge, and I think um, a lot of the other agents that use you as well recognize that there isn't really much you haven't seen, and you have a pretty good background on how to recognize what's going on, and more importantly, I think you do a great job with the buyers on um, educating them and kind of preparing them for this journey of home ownership, whichever whichever house it is they're about to um, about to buy. So you've done a really good job of setting expectations with buyers and having them understand the home they're about to buy. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you. All right. Well, with that being said, you know, it's interesting. My sign-off on my podcast is always use a local lender. So I'm going to change it today, which is just as applicable, and say always use a local inspector. I think that uh, everybody will benefit from it. So with that being said, everyone, we are signing off. Remember to use a local inspector. And with that, we will see you next time. Take care, everybody. Thanks for listening to Home Selling Hero. For more, subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform and connect with Tom across LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. If you have a question about selling your home or buying your next one, reach out to Tom at tom at tomdidier.com or call or text him directly at 414-881-3290. 
Home Selling Hero is a production of Tom Didier Real Estate in partnership with Westport Studios. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and any information presented during the course of discussion is presented as reliable under the laws of the state of Wisconsin. Be sure to consult a local agent in order for any nuances where you may live.